What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. We have been led to believe that this there's a connection between capitalism development and the policies that are implemented in this name in the name of prosperity someone who has st- written extensively on the issue of real development is Dr. Vandana Shiva. She's a world-renowned environmental thinker and activist, a leader in the International Forum on Globalization, along with Ralph Nader and Jeremy Rifkin, and the Slow Food Movement. Dr. Shiva won the Alternative Nobel Peace Prize, the Right Livelihood Award in 1993. She's the director of Namdaya and the Research Foundation for Science, Technology, and Natural Resource Policy. She's the author and editor of many books, including Earth Democracy, Justice, Sustainability, and Peace, Manifestos, and the Future of Food and Seed, Water, Wars, Privatization, Pollution, and Profit, Protect or Plunder, Understanding Intellectual Property Rights, Stolen Harvest, The Hijacking of the Global Food Supply, Via Piracy, The Plunder of Nature and Knowledge, Monoculture of the Mind, The Violence of the Green Revolution, and before becoming an activist, Vandana Shiva was also one of India's leading physicists. She's here to speak with us today about her book, Soil Not Oil. We're very privileged to have Vandana Shiva. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Now, Dr. Shiva, as as we look at society today, uh, Dr. Parenti points out that many of us attribute the relative comfort that people in the West enjoy to capitalism, to um, this idea of development. But in the third world countries, we seem to see a different picture of development uh, as an imposition of exploitation and expropriation of our land. How do you see the role of development, capitalism, and neoliberalism in creating poverty throughout the world? The word development is an invention of late 1940s in economics. It's been used before that in biology. And in biology, development means an organism evolves on its own structure, logic, and potential. So an embryo becomes an adult. A seed becomes a tree. That is development. But in the economic sphere, development was defined by Robert McNamara for what is done to the third world, using the World Bank loans. And normally, it means erasing what exists, bringing the local economies into a global capitalist economy, 
in the process destroying subsistence, self-reliance, ecological sustainability, and cultural diversity, which is why it's not an accident that even while from the top, it's always said the tribals need development, the farmers need development, the third world needs development. From the bottom, the tribals and the peasants are saying, get off our backs. Now, if it was so good for tribals and peasants, they wouldn't be fighting against development because development for them means destruction. It means the appropriation of their resources. And what's very often forgotten, and I think that's what an economy that's been reduced to a market economy has done, it ignores the fact that through nature, through natural resources, people provide their needs. You can do tremendously productive ecological farming if you have land and if you have your seeds. You can have all the abundance of water if your forests are intact and your rivers aren't polluted. So that economy that nature gives us has been totally discounted by the development paradigm as well as by capitalism. And the only thing capital counts is capital itself and the appropriation of resources into the net of capital, turning what provides life into the provisioning of profits, transforming ecological assets of the people into commodities and property. And that is what is then leading to poverty. A most dramatic example of this is the fact that farmers who could make a decent living, and my own mother sent me through school and college as a farmer. Today, Indian farmers are committing suicide as they've been sucked into a commodified seed supply based on genetically modified seed, uh, intellectual property rights on seed, and the chemicals that go with genetic engineering. The author of Everyone Loves a Good Drought writes about how since 2004 till now, a farmer commits suicide every 30 minutes in India, and it exemplifies the normality of this issue. Now, in your book, you talk about the food crisis and how this reflects a deeper crisis. You speak of a convergence of crisis. Tell our audience what you mean by this. The convergence of the crisis that's taking place is a convergence of a crisis related to ecological catastrophes like climate catastrophe, climate chaos, and no matter how much debate climate skeptics try and create, no one can deny the climate has become so unstable that millions are losing their lives through intense cyclones, extended droughts, and intense floods. These are happenings today. Weather extremes intensified through the pollution of the atmosphere are causing death to millions already. Second crisis is the crisis of the very resource that has driven industrialism having peaked, the phenomena of peak oil, the exhaustion of oil, gas, coal, etc. We cannot build a future on something that is running out. The third crisis is the food crisis. And I was just reading now newspaper release how every day 83 children are dying. I mean, we count the suicides of farmers. The other side of it is children dying of hunger. Now, the suicides of farmer and children being pushed to hunger are part of the same profit-oriented industrial agriculture system and a globally integrated commodified food system. But I would add the crisis that started or got intensified in September 2008, the financial crisis, when the financial bubble burst, Wall Street collapsed, our governments everywhere are bailing out the banks that created the problem and meantime are forgetting their duties and responsibilities to the people. So all these multiple crises are converging into a perfect storm. Saying this, 
talks about the bailouts of 2008, and he estimates that some 12 million U.S. dollars are being dispersed per hour will be received by Indian corporations in tax write-offs in 2010 alone. You talk about the eco-imperialism in relation to how this crisis are used to exacerbate the structures of imperialism that were in place. Can you talk about this? Well, in every domain in every crisis that we are seeing. We are also seeing the very people who created the crisis by not respecting nature's limit, but not respecting people's rights to natural resources, are now offering solutions which will further destroy nature and further undermine people's rights. If you look at the climate crisis, what are the solutions on the table that the corporations are bringing? They're bringing trade in carbon, Basically, this means the polluters can continue to pollute, and now they trade in pollution. In the process, they want to make a trillion dollars every year. They've already hit 30 billion out of a totally fictitious trade, which is worse than the subprime crisis in real estate, because at least when they've created fiction around mortgages, there were actual houses behind it. In this case, all they have is carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's literally hot air. In the case of food, what are the corporations offering? For example, we have an intense debate in India right now where the corporations would like to destroy our public entitlement system that guarantees food to people and turn that too into a profit-making enterprise. Africa, where hunger has been so visible for so long. Uh, now Bill Gates and company have the Alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa to introduce GMOs and chemical fertilizers, and GMOs and chemical fertilizers will suck money out of Africa, will leave the soils desertified, will leave impoverished peasants more poor, and will leave hungry children of Africa hungrier. Chemical fertilizers have never fed people. They have fed corporations. So in every field you see an attempt to convert the crisis into an opportunity for corporate profits, which is leading to higher levels of intensification of conflicts within society. You know, talking about the issue of how uh, we've not only given our rights away in, in, in some cases, you know, in, in, the, in the U.S. and Canada, for instance, we now have such measures of security where people are willingly letting their iris scan, giving their fingerprints just so they can board a plane. Um, we talk about how, the, how our rights are being taken away, but we never see, we don't see the connection how our right to subsistence, to be able to feed ourselves is also being taken away. Um, in the presentation that Sinath did in Toronto just last uh, March 10th, he talks about the land grabs that are taking place, particularly in India. And I wonder if you could talk on this issue. Why is the significance of this? Well, the land grab that's taking place in India right now has been called uh, by Arundi the biggest grab since Columbus. And it's happening through two instruments. One is a law, which I hope we have managed to defeat through movements, which is called the Special Economic Zone Law, where the government would appropriate land through a colonial act and then hand it over at a low price to corporations who would then sell it and commodify the land for super profits at 100, 200, 300 times the price that the farmers had received. And everywhere farmers are rebelling against this. In the tribal areas, in the lands of the indigenous people, that is where the forests are, that's where the minerals are, that's where the bauxite that makes aluminium is, that's where the iron ore is, that makes steel. And part of what globalization and neoliberalism did was it 
basically allowed corporations, for example, the aluminium companies of Canada, to shut down in Canada because of high wages and to relocate and develop partnerships with Indian companies so that they could manufacture steel and aluminium at a lower cost and therefore maximize their profit margins. The use of steel and aluminium did not go down in Canada and the United States or Japan and Europe. But today the tribal of India is bearing this burden as more mines are opened up, as more smelters are created, as more land is appropriated for industry. And on the 9th, 10th and 11th of April, a large network of movements, including my own, we are doing a public trial of the violation of the constitutional rights of the tribals. Because the constitution allows the tribals to decide what they'll do with their land. And today, under the greed of globalization, every law that protects the tribals is being put aside in order to enable the corporations to get hold of the minerals that lie under that land. And because the tribals are resisting, across the country there's resistance. And this trial that we will be doing, the tribals will be giving witness. The government is now coming to the aid of the corporations with something that is called Operation Green Hunt. It's in the name of controlling the extremists, but in reality it is about flushing out the tribals so that these resources and this land is free to be grabbed. This has been called by many of us the genocide of the tribals of India. But if there's a genocide allowed of the tribals of India, there will be a genocide of the farmers of India. There will be a genocide of the people of India. And we're talking about a population of 600, 700 million people. The greed of the global corporate economy is now so high that it has to become cannibalistic. It must eat up the very people who support this planet, support the provisioning of food, who grow our nourishment who protect our forests and our rivers this present model of the economy can only grow by grabbing the land of the poorest by violating the constitution violating democracy violating human rights and violating above all of that the laws of the earth your movement land sovereignty has brought us awareness of how our not only is our land being taken away but also uh, the air who owns the air how can a corporation be given a license to pollute X amount of air of our atmosphere it's something so essential for survival and when you look at the contrast for instance in, in India um, we were uh, speaking with Justin Pudor who pointed out Indian billionaires you know outgun Scandinavia Australia and Japan that the billionaires control wealth that's equivalent to one third of India's total gross national product that about 341 billion in that one trillion economy it's in a country where 836 million Indians live on 50 cents a day so this great contrast of having the four largest amount of billionaires and at the same time having millions of people living on 50 cents a day it's a great contrast of inequality of great injustice and so when the land is taken away, eroded because of mining and uh, poisoning of water, we are introduced with solutions. We are now being told that to alleviate hunger, to alleviate, we should accept generically modified foods. Can you speak about the impact of introducing generically modified foods to biodiversity and to our, to our cultures? The, the first thing that genetically modified food will increase food production is a clear for falsehood. It just isn't true. The tools of genetic engineering can only introduce single genes, most of the time toxic genes, like genes for resisting a herbicide or genes for producing a toxin like Bt toxin. So all you get higher amounts of is more poison, not more food. Because of the fact that these new seeds 
have been manipulated in order for companies like Monsanto to own the seed as their intellectual property. The companies collect royalties. They push up the prices of seed. They turn seed into a monopoly, forcing farmers to buy the seed every year. That's where their profits come from. The result of it is that farmers are being pushed into debt and to suicide. That's the reason the suicides have grown. And most of them are concentrated in the cotton belt. Most of the cotton belt has now become a BT GMO cotton belt. Um, Interestingly, just a week ago, where Monsanto, in fact, wanted to deepen its monopoly to bring a second generation of genetically modified cotton, it admitted that their first generation is failing to control the pest that it was designed to control, the bollworm. So it's a technology that fails, and yet it is being pushed, and other sources are being destroyed. We've done studies that show that soil organisms are being killed. The Andhra Pradesh government did studies to show that animals grazing on BT cotton fields died, and their entire intestinal system was totally damaged. Because of all this evidence out of the BT cotton, when Monsanto Mahiko, their Indian partner, tried to introduce the BT eggplant, Recently, we had a countrywide outrage. The government was forced to hold public hearings, and the Minister of Environment was pushed into implementing a moratorium. Of course, Monsanto would like to undo that moratorium. They're now trying to float a law to create a new biotechnology authority to displace the Ministry of Environment. And in this law, the states and regions which have the right to decide about agriculture, and 13 of the states in India said no to the GMO eggplant, are being told you can't make decisions, therefore the Constitution of India doesn't count. And people like me who for the last 20 years have been critiquing GMOs and Monsanto and have been building alternatives. The law says, Article 63, if you question genetically modified organisms, you can be thrown into jail for six months and fined 200,000 rupees. That's how desperate these corporations are getting. That's the level of fascist structures and dictatorial systems they must institutionalize in order to maintain their profits. You speak about the impact of uh, generically modified foods. I wonder if you could also uh, talk a little bit about the role of monoculture, how it impacts our ability to create sustainable uh, food. Nature never creates monocultures. Nature creates diversity. Monocultures are a product of an industrial mindset and an industrial system. Monocultures become necessary when an agribusiness wants to control agriculture, to sell chemicals and pesticides, to sell seeds. And because this is externally controlled, you can't have diversity, you must have monocultures. Monocultures and external inputs and monopolies go hand in hand. The problem with monocultures is they actually biologically produce less. So even though everything that a monoculture grows goes into the market and commodity flow increases, so there's more soya bean, there's more corn, but food goes down. So there's less beans, there's less vegetables for the farm family, there's less oil seeds, there's less fruit trees, and a mixed system which could produce 10 tons of yield per acre is reduced to a monoculture of 2 or 3 or 4 tons of yield per acre. And this is then called productive. We are losing six tons of the Earth's potential to feed us. Every diverse system is sustainable because it feeds the soil. Every diverse system provides food security because there's enough food for the producer community. And every diverse system produces nutrition because we need diversity in what we eat. Monocultures create more commodities, but they also create more profits. They also create more control. That's the kind of agriculture, industrial agriculture, would like to promote worldwide, but it damages biodiversity, and even more important, it takes away our freedom to farm.
I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this move away from our cultural values. You write, cows and trees used to be invaluable in India. Humans had to adjust their activities to protect them. The livelihoods of the poor were invaluable under Article 21 of India's constitutions, which guaranteed the right to life. How has this changed with the introduction of car-intensive culture you know, and technology? Till about four or five years ago, no matter where in the country I went, you would see the road bend around a sacred ficus tree because the tree could not be cut. The car had to go around it. When I used to be in the Institute of Management in Bangalore in the early 80s, my office had a coconut tree growing through it. Very modern building, but the coconut is also a sacred tree. And they did not cut the coconut just in order to build a building. They built a building around the coconut. And in Delhi, till four or five years ago, the cows used to roam the streets. It was wonderful because they slowed the traffic down and there were fewer accidents. Today, 100,000 people are killed on the roads of India as the yuppies buy cars with fancy loans. Uh, the car industry sells cars not for need, but for fun, for speed, for a kick and in the process, the entire economy has changed, the entire landscape has changed, the entire design of our society has changed. Cows are now illegal on the streets of Delhi. They get fined. Trees get cut every day for the car. And the entire city, and you could say this for Chennai from where I've just returned, or for Bangalore where I used to be 20 years ago, every city which used to be full of trees is today full of concrete flyovers. And I watch all this and say, when oil becomes too costly, what will these cities look like? They'll be, they'll be graves of cement. We are presented with a world we're told has no other alternatives, that modernity is here and this is the way it is. You can't turn back the clock. What are the alternatives? Well, we can't turn back the clock, but we can definitely shape the direction in which the clock moves on more democratic terms. Uh, the future does not have to be decided by the greed of the automobile industry, the greed of Monsanto, the greed of Cargill, the greed of the oil industry. That is not the only path for the evolution of humanity. In fact, that's a suicidal path because every indicator tells us that on that path, humanity has no future as a species on this planet because we are destroying the very conditions on which we live. So we must create the other path. Sometimes creating the other path means taking initiative and, as Gandhi said, to be the change you want to see. Sometimes, as Gandhi said, you have to recognize that unjust law must not be obeyed and you will have to build alternative systems. It took a Rosa Park to sit down on a bus seat when it was illegal for black to sit in that part of the bus. And that started the civil rights movement. It took Gandhi to pick up the salt when the British said, only we will make salt. We have followed that step. And Monsanto says, oh, only we will make seed and all the seed will be genetically modified. And we say, no, we will save our seeds. We will exchange our seeds. This is our duty. And like Gandhi disobeyed the salt laws, we will disobey our patent laws. Uh, we did this in 2004 when native seeds were being made illegal in India and the government was forced to withdraw that law. Even if it had not withdrawn that law, we'd have continued to save seeds. We have prepared more than 500,000 and farmers to be seed keepers, to be seed keepers in terms of even of civil disobedience if it will be necessary in the future. And I think on basic issues like seed and land and food and water, if humanity does not start to adhere to higher laws of ethics, higher laws of ecology, higher laws of humanity, and continues to be subjugated and bullied by the laws of corporate greed, 
then we have no freedom and we have no survival. So it's an absolute ethical duty at this point to defend the higher laws. And if it means disobeying lower barbaric laws, that's what we will have to do individually and collectively. I practice that every day of my life. And I just hope everywhere in the world people will rise and say this is not the way we will be governed. In your book, you speak about the dominant food economy uh, being based on monopolies and monocultures or industrialization of production and how globalization of distribution of a handful of crops like corn, soy, rice and wheat has pushed 1 billion people into hunger and another 2 billion into obesity. I also think we can do much more with our own personal choices, the way people live, what people eat. What connection do you make between our diet and the way we resist? I think every meal that we eat, every morsel of food we put into our bodies is a moment of choice. It's a moment of resistance against the destructive systems that are destroying the natural capital of this planet, taking food away from the poor and to others giving food that's destroying their health. We can, in that choice, shape the conservation of this precious earth. and We can shape a food system which brings food to all because ultimately food is about how ecological resources are used. And the more resources are left for people, the more food there will be. If land is grabbed, there will be less food for the poor. If land is left in the hands of the tribals and peasants, there will be more food in the hands of the tribals and peasants. Food production is something society doesn't have to be taught by Monsanto. In fact, Monsanto doesn't know how to produce food. Their real skill is warfare. It used to be chemical warfare, now it's genetic warfare. And I think we can do without any of their skills in a good food system. The most important point about connecting every day's eating to a larger shift is to recognize that everything is connected and everything's connected through a food chain. So every tiny action has huge repercussions down that food chain. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. And on the 9th, 10th, and 11th of April, there's a... We are doing a people's trial of the constitutional violations of the rights of indigenous people in India. How can people participate in this movement? Keep track on our website, navdanya.org, N-A-V-D-A-N-Y-A, and... You can join the corporate campaigns we will be launching because ultimately it's a handful of aluminium and steel companies that are grabbing all this land and all of them have partnership. They're all interconnected. The corporations are one. People need to become one. Thank you so much for being with us today. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an educational consultant and artist, authored. For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylvierichardson.com. Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you.